is that how you would go about it? You just go and say, oh, so how would you introduce your cultures? Because I know well, when we have these conversations, right, a lot of people are like, well, just give me the answer. So I'm like, well, no, you got to go through the process. You have to ask. So is that how, is that how you would do it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would. And, you know, and it's, I think beyond the question of where are you from or who are, you know, who are you? I think there is always that question of why are you interested? And I think that if you are clear about the fact that you're wanting to create that, that, that relationship that um, you're wanting to, um, you're wanting to know because you are wanting to have that opportunity for that, um, that connectedness um, that we all, you know, um, look for as, as just as humans, um, rather than a, just a, rather than a, a sense of validating what somebody is or who, who somebody is or where their, their um, uh, citizenship or enrollment status might be. So, you know, so sometimes there, you know, there will be people that are kind of question like, well, why, why is this important to you? So, you know, I, I think that it's good not to get into the question of, oh, are you enrolled? Because that's a whole, like, that's, that's a whole bag of stuff that you don't want to step in unless you are ready for what could be a very painful story, you know, for a lot of, you know, there are folks that because of um, failures in the adoption system, um, uh, not being able to uh, enroll in their tribe because they can't, uh, their files, you know, their, their, their files are sealed mm-hmm. or um, a friend of mine who um, really, uh, you know, she was, she was in her sixties and it was painful for her because she was a product of rape. And um, because of that was not able, was not um, uh, enough blood quantum. That's also another, that's a whole other thing um, to be able to get citizenship. And so, I mean, uh, in uh, uh, enrollment in her tribe. So I think you have to be mindful about why it is you're asking that question and whether you're prepared for um you know, very honest answer and, and whether you might be triggering some very painful memories for somebody because of this really, um, fairly unimportant question, you know, because enrollment status doesn't say how you identify. It doesn't say who you are, how engaged you are in your community. Um, um, you know, what, what makes you, you what's your cultural pride? It's just, it's a, it's a tool of the government. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. Welcome to NAPCAST, a podcast produced by Hilltop Children's Center in Seattle, Washington, on the traditional lands of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people. I'm your co-host, Mike Brown, and my pronouns are he and him. In honor of Indigenous People Day, we sit down with Miriam, an indigenous woman ex of color to celebrate and honor the first people of this continent and to commemorate her history and her culture. As colonizers, allies, and non-indigenous voices of color, I encourage you all to look up and research which indigenous lands you are currently gathering, harvesting from, and living on and to honor both federally recognized 
and unrecognized indigenous people by donating to indigenous rights organizations, by attending vigils, rallies, or marches organized by native people, to support native artisans. And don't forget, don't just celebrate Indigenous People Day, but actively disavow Columbus Day, white supremacy, and other ways we seek to eradicate Indigenous voices and knowledge year round. So first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity to um, speak on the podcast uh and i also want to say that um you know i'm really uh, i just want to acknowledge that um we're doing this podcast today on traditional lands of the duwamish and coast salish people and um so i'm grateful to be a guest on their lands um and opportunity to do this work so um Halito, Sahochifo, Yat Miriam, Chakta Sia, Cherokee Sia, Sakbak Sia, African American Sia, Ashkenazi Sia. Uh, so my name is Miriam and um, my Indian name is Tewala Wicket. Uh, I am a Choctaw, Cherokee, Sakbak, uh, African American, and Ashkenazi. Um, I am a mother of two beautiful brown children, and um, I am a early learning coach with the city of Seattle. Um, I also uh, love to participate now virtually in any way possible in uh, opportunities to support our um, indigenous folks, uh, indigenous from you know the world over. So yeah, excited, excited to be here, excited to to share. Um, my perspectives on on some topics. And I just want to start right there, actually, because you said two words which I always go back and forth on. So you said Indian, and then you said indigenous. And then I also know that a lot of people like to use the term aboriginal. So I guess, does it, um, obviously words and language matters, but is there a specific one that you prefer or is there a specific one? And I hate to get into like the politically correctness, but I want to be able to say the right words and attribute and give you honor and recognition for everything that you're doing. Um, and actually, can we pause for one second? I'm going to tell my husband to stop opening the door. <laughs> 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 so the terms, you know what? Um, I, well, first of all, I'll say that, um, so I want to make sure it's really clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of any particular group, um, you know, not speaking for these, you know, sharing my perspectives on things. So I don't want to be perceived as like an expert, quote unquote, mm-hmm. on any said topics. I'm just, uh, you know, another person just sharing thoughts. But, um, you know, what I've come to learn is that uh, there are you know, there's there's different names that we all have for ourselves. There might be names that um, other folks come to know us as, um, and then there may be names that um, individuals um, in groups of people decide upon for themselves. So, um, like I, you know, I was I was taught after you know incorrectly stating that folks um, in uh, Canada you know, refer to themselves as First Nations. And there are folks in other parts of the world that refer to themselves as Aboriginal. And um, I, I mean, for myself, I, I, I use the word native and indigenous interchangeably. 
um, especially because uh, being mixed race as well, I you know often will identify as Afro-Indigenous because I also want to acknowledge um, the African-American ancestry as well. So, um, you know, I think it's, and, and there are times that people will, you know, they, they might not want to say American Indian because um, of feelings around that or Native American because of feelings around that. So it's, you know, I always say it's, it, it's always wise to ask folks how, you know, to, to introduce or how they, how they would introduce their cultures. It's, um, yeah, these, these terms um, sometimes will change as, um, as, you know, certain politics or ideas change around them. So you mentioned a couple of words there that really resonates and something that I'm always talking or saying over and over again, um, and that was relationship and community. And obviously, we, we both work with children directly and indirectly, and just knowing from both of our cultures, um, just how sacred children are. So, you know, children hold a sacred place in the cultures of indigenous peoples. And with that comes a sacred responsibility to care for them. And then an indigenous framework is so broad and so vast and it varies from people to people. Um, so a curriculum that centers indigenous gifts, knowledges and ways of being incorporates what for you? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, so again, this is from my perspective, but, um, you know, I think about how, yeah, there's, there are a lot of, um, cultural ways of thinking, indigenous ways of thinking that, um, hold children at a much higher level and, um, is more competent, as more, um, precious and sacred than, um, than a lot of our Western Westernized curriculums, uh, that children are not just a vessel that we pour knowledge into and that, um, we don't want them to be just compliant. We don't want them to, you know, to conform. We, we want them to be who they are. We want them know, to know who they are. Um, and so, uh, and we want them to know how to kind of intrinsically walk through the world with this um uh a sense of how to be a, a better person mm -hmm. um and so you know i think about um uh you know that it, it uh i've had this conversation with uh folks in the past where they said oh was it kind of like you know how you would have in certain religious schools, you know, the, you'd have these teachings, and I would say, well, no, because it's not—it's not a religion. It's just—it's a—it's a—it's a way of being. It's—it's it's a culture. It's a lifestyle. It's—it's it's multifaceted, um, and uh, and not that I'm saying anything disparaging about uh, religious teachings or religious-based schools or curriculums, but that this is—it's a—it's—it's a full—it's—it's it's looking at the full person. And um, and how that full person walks in the world. So, um, you know, you're thinking about the day to day, those practices that you have to center yourself to um, to you know start the day in a good way. Um, what what are your cultural teachings that help you to get ready for the day? To get ready for um, 
for the task ahead. Um, and that might, that's gonna, you know, that, that could look different for, for different communities. There's different protocols and traditions and um, it might be smudging. It might be, um, it might be saying a prayer or it might be um, um, sharing a meal. You know, it can, it can look different ways in different communities. And that's, what's really beautiful about it. So there's no one way to do it. Um, and, uh, there's also, um, the idea that, you know, the, some of the ways in which you engage with different people in different, um, um, things in our natural environment, um, also takes that, that sacredness. You know, so um, one of the things that I really love about um, indigenous frameworks, frameworks of, of, of um, teaching and just kind of being that I have seen in many different indigenous cultures, uh, not just those that are here, you know, in the Americas, but um, also in Aotearoa uh, or New Zealand, you know, the um, uh, ways of looking at our plant relatives and our animal relatives and um uh and our water relatives and you know and thinking of them i remember having an elder say um that the reason that you um should really regard um them as your relatives is that it helps to teach you a better way to treat them because um the way in which we regard some of these things as resources. So it allows us to exploit them and um, deprive them. And so if these were our grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, you wouldn't mistreat or abuse or poison them. You wouldn't allow them to be deprived of nutrients or, you know, um, um, create a situation that would make them unable to thrive. You would love them. You would care for them. You would check in on them. You would make sure that if you're if you're asking for something, you don't ask for too much. Um, so thinking about harvesting practices, um, you know, you, you, you take what you need. You're thankful for that. Um, you give, you give before you take, you, you decide whether it's a good idea to, um, uh, uh, you know, whether, whether what you want is, um, helpful, you know, in kind of the larger context, you know, is, uh, is what you want strong enough that it's, you know, it could um, uh, create a, an unstable situation. So think about like our our water quality, um, our air quality in places, um, the way in which forestry is done, um, and uh, why there are mindful practices, why there are teachings around um, uh, different ways of treating the land, why, why um, sometimes you will have these very elaborate stories that are told. Uh, there's a great storyteller, you know, here, uh, named Roger Fernandez. And, um, <laughs> and he is, uh, um, you know, I, I love the way in which he tells these, you know, beautifully elaborate stories. And, um, and sometimes it is for you to, to identify what the meaning of it is. Um, and so those are the, those are the those are the beautiful gifts about you know um, indigenous ways of of educating uh, children and adults as well. Um, and when we don't do that, we see situations like what we have in California, where there used to be um, 
ways in which there were controlled burns of the land to take care of it, to um, to make sure that um, the land was was healthy and um, wasn't neglected by mm. letting things pile up. And when we don't do that, um, we end up with fires. In Arizona, I remember um, somebody telling me down at the Tonawatha Nation about how a, a copper mine um, parked right at the edge of the reservation and, and just outside in county territory. And um, they tapped into the groundwater. And instead of, you know, maybe deciding whether it's a good idea to have that in the desert um, in order to extract copper, they drained it and dropped that water table so low that the land cracked. And so you had people all over the tribal nation that did traditional farming and, um, and some of their, some people's lands were affected more than others. And, and so it's like, well, how, you know, that copper was more important than people eating, you know? So it's, it's really trying to reevaluate why, why we need these things, you know, and, and, and at what cost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about culture, we're talking things that are intangible, but when we're trying to implement curriculum or um, teach of the indigenous ways, right, in, in the classroom, we often want something that we can touch, we can see, we can do. And I think that also comes into when we do land acknowledgements. And for me, the problem I see with landing acknowledgements is that people believe it's the end-all, be-all. Um, they believe that's the work. Much like they believe, um, I would say, supporting Black businesses once in a while is reparations, especially when we're talking about in the wake of Breonna Taylor, Natasha McKenna, Gabriela Nevarez, Kendra James, Melissa Williams, you know, I'm just rattling all of them off because, you know, hashtag say her name. Um, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. And most of the people listening out here are educators, and I often say educators, um, or I often hear educators say, well, all I can do is control what's happening in my classroom. So what can educators do or suggest to their legislators, um, knowing that you work both in the city and, and as you worked um, in, in a program? Um, so what can educators do to suggest to the legislators, to their elected officials, to their leadership team, um, to really center BIPOC voices, uh, most specifically Indigenous people, not just in the curriculum, but in everything they do? Hmm. Ah, well, um, yeah, that, I, was, I was scratching my brain on that one for a little bit. Um, so... You know, I think I think it's important to remember that you have power as a voter, that you voted for these people, and they're going to need to be voted back in, and that it is really important to, to say, be very explicit, be very clear about, um, uh, you know, what, what the needs are. Maybe, um, so as an educator, um, you know, I found that the most powerful voices are those parents. Mm. Uh, you get parents to speak. You get children to write things like, hey, I want my school to be safe. Hey, I want I want a safe place to play. Um, I, you know, I, I want my parents to have a roof over their head. I don't want to be hungry. You know, I mean, 
things like that, that um, are real issues that a lot of our folks in the BIPOC communities are facing. I mean, so, you know, for example, um, you know, Native Americans uh, here in Seattle, you know, uh, just for an example, uh, represent the largest number of uh, homeless folks. Mm. And, you know, and it says something when you are homeless on your own land, that is shameful. With as much money as the city has, um, people shouldn't be homeless. Children, it's always, I remember, you know, coaching and then also as a preschool director, you know, it was heartbreaking to hear that, you know, kids were sleeping in cars, sleeping in shelters, sleeping on couches, moving around a ton, you know, and, um, uh, or they didn't feel safe or they were, um, they had a lot of trauma that hadn't been, um, uh, hadn't been supported because of, um, you know, access to, to healthcare because of gun violence, you know, in their family, for example. Um, and so these are, these are things where if we say that we really care about um, children's well-beings, if we care about families, um, then we need to create more opportunities for them to have safe places to be, um, to have uh, uh, ways to access those important resources. And it's, you know, and for those that push back with the idea of not wanting to give handouts, it's like, you know what, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we take for granted that we get as a quote handout, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that we get as part of being in this country and having our privileges. And it's, you know, it's important for folks to um, reflect on um, what it might be if you happen to have a, you know, a series of unfortunate events Um or you know a, a history of unfortunate events that keep you in a system of of being traumatized and poor and um, uh, and discriminated against. I mean, um, so you know, my I would say educators uh, encourage parents, especially encouraging the parents with privilege and with power to figure out what their you know networks are to get get letters sent. Maybe, maybe it's you collect, you know, um, uh, have, have, a, you know, developmentally appropriate conversations with children about some of these, um, these, uh, current events that are happening, you know, whatever the event is that you're, you're wanting to center the message on making that message specific, maybe focusing on one thing at a time so that, um, that legislator is, is not getting a, a whole mass of, of information in different areas. Like you make your, you make your ask very specific. Like we need, we need more funding to make sure that we can get supplies for, um, um, for families that uh, need winter coats um, that we need to, you know, we have, maybe we have a specific family that is having some hardships with, um, uh, with housing. And we're wanting to help raise funds. You know, what, how can you, what can you do to help? You know, they, they live in your district or maybe they're homeless in your district. Mm. Yeah. I remember a couple, probably a year ago when you were at Daybreak, you hosted the intersection of early learning and homelessness. It was a summit or a conference or a symposium and, and it was fantastic. Do you have, um, putting you on the spot here, but do you have any, or remember any takeaways uh, or aha moments that you had 
as you were sitting, as you were learning, as you were participating um, while you were there? Yeah, so that that was a that was a wonderful event, and so I yeah I presented on a panel on that. Um, it was hosted by a combination of the Family Support and the Homelessness Prevention Department, and you know, and um, you know what was what was great about that. Uh, there were there were so many events going on at on that day, so it was I I was part of like you know these little snippets, and um, I helped out in some of the planning. But you know what was what was wonderful? It was it was that it was an opportunity for groups that did not um that were not used to intersecting um on these topics um to uh to 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 get a chance um to see the the commonalities we had um actually for example um oh boy i'm gonna forget her name uh bet ervis Bevette from uh, Wellsprings. Yes, thank you. <laughs> like, oh no, what's her name? This is like the worst time to forget her name. So I remember uh, sitting on the panel with Bevette from Wellspring, and she was just, you know, she was amazing was talking about the stories. And and we realized as we were talking, as we we're sharing stories, uh, that we had a lot of the same issues around transportation for our families that both of our, both of us had programs, um, early learning programs that were struggling with trying to find um, funds for school buses in order to help children get to school. And, um, and both of us, both of us talked about how this was really critical for families that did not have a reliable vehicle or families that had, um, uh, you know, maybe irregular work hours and had to have somebody else help get their kids to the bus. Um, or even families that, you know, families that were homeless or families that just, um, that just needed transportation for some other reason. And that, that it was a very expensive cost and that yet we see this as, um just fundamentally important you know access here we have a mode to help people get that access but there's no funding for it and that you know a lot of entities would say oh we don't we don't fund that we don't we don't have money for that it's like well why why can't we why can't we create that that seems like a that's that's again that's a very specific ask like we need money for these school buses and yet um I think she was saying that, yeah, they had to, they either had to re- significantly reduce or um, eliminate their fleet as a result, result of it. Um, Daybreak Star, sadly, um, had to make that decision too. It's, um, you know, it's this, this very expensive cost and we don't, it's like we don't realize what we got until it's gone. Um, they were talking about, um, there, there were a lot of places that, um, realized in some of the conversations that uh, they were putting a face to the name for the partners that they had in, um, you know, that was, that were perhaps just via email. These were the folks that they had been corresponding with, but finally being able to make that face-to-face mm-hmm. uh, contact in this more of a social setting. Um, there was the, um, the, the great amount of resource sharing. I, I, I know for myself, I benefit 
benefited from the fact that um, I had questions that I just wasn't getting an answer to. And I just kind of put the question out there and people in the audience were like, oh, that's actually our agency. Oh, actually we have a link for that. Oh, you know, I can give you a, you know, I can give you my email and um, we might be, we, we might be able to help with that. And so audience and I was writing out all the names myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. It was like, you know, resource page come alive uh, right there in real time. And, and what was, yeah, what was great is that, you know, you have homelessness and you have early learning and people, you know, in other contexts may not have seen where those, those two intersected, but then, you know, it's all of these connections started being made. So that's, um, yeah, that's what was really wonderful. And it was in, a, you know, being hosted in a place that is meant to be a gathering place. So it's like, you know, at daybreak, you're in this beautiful historic building that gathers people together. And so you've got these great minds from participants to speakers to organizers, everybody just connecting and, and um, engaging and, um, yeah, just trying to see what we can do to help some of our families. So uh, I'm really hoping that there's an opportunity to do, you know, 2.0 of that, of that conference. And it goes back to something that my mom used to always say, probably not the best of context right now, but closed mouth don't get fed. And <laughs> basically it's, you know, for those who are not familiar with it, it's basically, if you don't speak up, you're not going to, you're not going to get anything. And I think that's why it's so important that we attend different things that might not, you might not necessarily see, oh, how does that have to do with my daily work or what I do in the classroom? But you're able to go to different and hear different people and hear different perspectives and go, oh, wait, and have that aha moment, that enlightenment, like, oh, it's so much bigger than the kids I'm serving. It's so much bigger than the the program I'm in. It's about transportation. It's about food. It's about providing um, services that aims to nourish the mind, body, and souls of children. So I appreciate you definitely bringing that up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also that, you know, at these events, um, they oftentimes will happen. Um, you know, they, of course, like everything, there's always hiccups. Mm -hmm. You don't often know about what all the behind the scenes stuff is. And it's better to do it than to try to strive for perfection on these things. And I think, you know, also thinking about the saying of, um, you know, if you're doing something in a good way, if you are, um, if you're going into it with good intention, um, you are trying your best to take that, that care in, in every aspect of it and knowing that, you're going to have that flexibility. Things are going to come up, but it's fine. You can let those things roll off. Um, I could say that was definitely the case when I uh, had done a workshop uh, and I had a bazillion technology issues. I was like, you know, yeah, this is happening and it's okay because the intention for the day is greater than these minor things and it's 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 better not to invest your energy in um trying to make something perfect it's better to invest that energy in you know how are how are people doing mm -hmm. you know are they connecting are people getting the message across are people um are, are they fe feeling like they are uh being checked in with we'll be right back
Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool, after-school program, and Professional Development Institute of Early Learning and Inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. In my chat with Miriam, I heard so many similarities, challenges, and opportunities to heal in this liberation movement. The liberation movement between my people as Afro-Caribbean and Miriam's people as an Afro-Indigenous. What I heard, and that's fine if you didn't, go back and re-listen. And, you know, of course, don't forget to share with a friend. It's something that even after re-listening to it, still sends chills down my body. And that's how Miriam finds ways to not just create pathways to make her work culturally relevant, but how she finds ways in which it sustains her. It's her practice, it's her customs, it's resiliencies of her ancestors over generations and cultures that she draws her strength from. And not just draws strengths from it, but the way she honors it and she extends it into her everyday life. Being vulnerable and sharing a part of ourselves as BIPOC, that's Black Indigenous people of color, is difficult, y'all. Now, it's easy when it's from one culture or one community of color to another. But to share it with a country, a society, a world that's been hell-bent on trying to rid rid us of it, It's a scary endeavor to lean into. It's why, it's it's why I'm so honored that she was willing to share a piece of her with us. And to share how she uses her culture, her practices, the way she introduces a part of herself and the culture with the children she partners with, with her colleagues, how her practices grounds her in her own family, how she passes down those teachings of elders to others, including us. It might have just been a, a blimp on the radar, but flip back to how she mentioned the connection to nature. Hear how it sustains her. Hear how it serves as a reminder of the ongoing life that connects us all and it informs her teaching skills, her strategies, her, her political, ideolo- uh, ideological, and, and moral commitments. How she nourishes the soils in which nourishes her soul. See, what Marion reminds us is that honoring different cultures, it's an active thing. 
her active participation in life, in sustaining her culture, is a reminder that to shift power in a society that does not value BIPOC bodies or brilliance requires us to be active, y'all. It requires us to be, dare I say it, radical. And I know that word has been co-opted by political parties for the advancement of the ideologies and by using that particular word, I probably just ended my career as a politician before it even started. But to honor different cultures, to change the trajectory of a child's life, because that's that's the business we're in. That's why we wake up. That's why we go to work each day. It's going to require the radical participation from all of us. I can already hear you over there saying, oh, but what does radical look like? Well, do you remember the question I asked Miriam? I asked her, what does an indigenous curriculum look like? And since for majority of us, it's not something that we might be particularly familiar with, I think her answers in that question is where we can look for some help in answering this question. And that's not to say indigenous curriculum is radical. It just means you're getting down to the root of the situation or the problem. It means you're not just concentrating on the beauty of this blooming flower. I say that as I look at my spider plants. While the roots are infected by disease. It means we need to understand how things are connected, how one thing affects another, how language is used, how we analyze what is being said, offered, and executed. See, radical doesn't necessarily mean uprooting the entire system. Sometimes it just means thinking differently. It might mean actively rejecting the white heteronormative framework in which our entire educational experience is based out of. It might mean intentionally bringing activism in all forms of it, really, from from regalia to music to theater to art. It's bringing that in together with identity exploration through an intersectional lens. It's, it's combining it with generational healing into our programs. It might mean as educators or as program leaders, we shift our thinking of simply providing a service, you know, providing education. We shift out of that mode of thinking and we move to providing an immersive experience for children. One that caters to the life experience of my indigenous brothers, sisters, and two spirits. One in which we engage in structural reforms, acts of engagement that seeks to improve 
the social inequities such as poverty, food insecurity, transportation, like Miriam said, social exclusion, and more in order to, to curve absenteeism, early learning challenges, and premature school leaving that many indigenous children and youth face today. So, I'll leave you with this. As centers, as educators, as pre-service teachers, as policymakers, as youth advocates, or whatever role in which you are currently in listening to this today, the onus is on us. We constantly state and argue to those outside of our industry, outside of our field, that the first 5,000 days of life is crude. It's, cru it's crucial, it's critical, right? That early childhood care and education plays a central role in developing, engage, and inform citizens. But where and how are we investing our own money? Where and how are we investing our own time, our own people power? to design, deliver, expand, and evaluate infrastructures that promotes equity in education, equity in health, development, and nutrition, and learning for indigenous communities. Where and how are we changing internally as an industry? Where and how are we changing internally as individual organizations? Where and how are we changing internally, the way we think, the way we act, the way we do, that is actively supporting Indigenous children holistically. A crisis in late 2019 and all of 2020 named COVID-19 has hit an early childhood education was an afterthought once again. So let's take matters into our own hands and collaborate, just like Miriam said, right? And let's come together and think of multi-tiered systems of interventions and support across sectors, across industries, and between you and me in order to create multi-sectoral solutions for our youngest children and our youngest citizens of color. As the sun sets and another Indigenous People's Day comes to a close, I encourage all of us to consider how can we, how can we decolonize our minds? And indigenize our ways of being around nutrition, education, parental involvement, culture, language, health and social supports, partnerships, and community engagement to achieve collective liberation for all. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation, available at 
www.hilltopcc.org. Thank you.